Welcome to the I-29 MUU Dairy Podcast. I-29 MUU University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. Hi, my name is Jim Salfer. I'm a University of Minnesota Regional Dairy Educator, and on this podcast, we're honored to have Dr. Mike Hutchins, who retired a couple of years ago from University of Illinois. He's talking a little bit about his perspective of the future of the dairy industry. I'm also really lucky to be joined by who I consider a colleague of mine, Fred Hall, who's an Iowa State University Dairy Field Specialist, and he's in Northwest Iowa. Welcome, Fred. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. I I appreciate it very much. And I really think looking into a crystal ball, especially with our industry, is one of the really fun things we get to do. And and we've got the man who probably does it better than anybody with us today. Mike, be good to talk to you. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, Mike. So if you want to go ahead and look a little bit... Uh, Maybe it's always good to look back a little bit on some of the changes you've seen. You had a long, illustrious career in kind of the upper Midwest. So what changes have you seen and then how might they equate to what you might see in the future? Well, Jim and Fred, I agree with you 100 percent. Sometimes looking back, we can then look ahead. So here's some fun facts uh, to think about. In 2011, we had 51,300 roughly herds in the United States today. This is 2021. That's 29,858. So a typical 6 7% decline in the number of dairy farms is very, very common. However, the number of dairy cows stays very, very, very constant. In some cases, go up or down, depending on the price of milk. In 2011, we had 170. Uh, the average in the U.S. was 179 cows. Uh, now you look at 2021 data, that's 316. And uh, the average herd size in Illinois is about 140 cows. So obviously we are small potatoes compared to uh, states like New Mexico that averages 2,200 cows per herd down there in that state as well. Milk production has gone up as well. Back 10 years ago, 21,400 roughly. Now today, the average production is 24,000. So it continues to go up. And I think that trend will continue as we see the technology occur as well. Illinois is under a quota. Uh, that is probably bad news. In fact, it is bad news for Illinois. It simply means that you can only produce so many pounds of milk uh, per day that uh, the co-op will pick up. So that means uh, those farmers have figured out that if I can increase my components, I can boost my milk check. And of course, that's really good news because we're only drinking about 16% of our milk and we're eating over 40% as cheese as far as that goes. And not only is Illinois under a quota, but other co-ops have what they call supply management. Nobody likes the word quota because that's not very American, but they are supply management and some of the very large co-ops are doing that as well. So certainly those kind of changes have happened. And, and Jim and Fred, I think we're going to see that trend continue with fewer farms, larger herd sizes uh, occurring in the United States. Pretty common now to find uh, a thousand cow dairy herds uh, is common in a lot of the, the bigger states that have uh, larger cow numbers as far as that goes. And of course, the 3X milking is almost a requirement now. In some states, we're now seeing some 4X milking going on as well. So certainly, uh, I I think uh, if we look back a little bit, we can see what's coming here. And of course, right now, the exporting is unbelievable. 
Uh, my understanding is we're exporting about 17 or 18 percent of our dairy milk equivalent solids annually. It's one of our success stories. And our uh, our uh, value of cheese is lowest in the world. So we are selling lots of cheese. Right now, butter is a little too expensive, but uh, that too will change probably after the holidays. Mike, just as a comment, when I came to Stearns County, I put this in perspective in Minnesota, and it's the biggest dairy county in Minnesota, if you're not familiar with it. But when I came about 25 years ago, we had about 1,500 dairy herds in that county. Now we've got about 2,100 dairy herds in the entire state of Minnesota. And so over this 25 years, so it's you know, not unique to Wisconsin or Minnesota. And I tell people that this is kind of a, a kind of a national trend. So where, Mike, what's your perspective on where we'll be in another 20 years? Because as you mentioned, we continue to lose dairy farms. How many farms are we going to have in another 20 years? Are we going to, are we going to be like, uh, I don't know, car factories where we have, you know, half a dozen large dairies or where, where do you think this is going to end up? Well, again, uh, Fred, uh, you already mentioned about crystal balling looking ahead. You know, some people think we get down to 10,000 cow, uh, 10,000 uh, uh, herds in the United States with a thousand cows each. Bingo. There we are. We'll be at it as far as that goes. So I think we're going to see that trend that's going to occur. But, you, you know, we're going to look ahead. And I, I guess, guys, uh, I, I guess I see two types of dairy farms. Uh, and there could be more, but I call what I call the more conventional farms. Uh, they're going to probably milk um, 150 cows per full-time equivalent. So how many herd managers, how many associates are you going to have? How many milkers are you going to have? And just keep multiplying that by 150 cows. So, you know, if you're milking three times a day, you're probably going to have two or three milking shifts coming through there. That's going to become a factor as, as far as that goes. Pretty common, I, I guess I see. And uh, and uh, you're right into, uh, Fred, with a bit more. Uh, 2,500 cows is kind of a common number. Now, you may find four of those farms within a, a mile of each other, but basically it looks like that's kind of the management unit uh, that's about kind of maxes out what we can really handle when we look at, at parlor size and stuff like that. And and so another way to look at that would be, if you don't do cow numbers, uh, I, I use uh, the word about 200,000 pounds of milk per full-time equivalent. So if you've got a 30,000 pound herd average, that number gets lower. If you've got a 20,000 pound herd average, that number has to get higher. And so milk production becomes a factor and maybe on these conventional farms dictating how big you want to be and how many people do you have to support. And, you know, all of us are living longer, thank goodness. And so a lot of these farms, uh, mom and dad are retired, but the, their income has to come off the farm. That's a full-time equivalent. Sons and daughters come into play. Sometimes there's two or three uh, siblings there as well. And then the management team that goes with that as well. So suddenly then the number just keeps keeps building. The other one, I guess I see, I call that what I call the niche market. And I know Minnesota and Wisconsin, you have many more than we have in Illinois, but that's organic. We see organic farming. In fact, one of your big research centers uh, is, is uh, spends uh, most of their research dollars looking at applications of organic milk production that's used around uh, around the world, actually, at this point, coming out of the Morris Experiment Station there. Uh, grass only. I know Iowa State has done some, uh, Larry Trannell has done some work looking at the economics of grass only milk consumers. They will pay a premium for that. And that becomes another factor we'll talk about a little bit later here as well. 
uh, the on-farm production. We have uh, six or seven of them here in Illinois. There are perhaps more in Iowa, in Minnesota, and Wisconsin, in which they're taking their milk and they're making yogurt, they're making cheese. Uh, uh, one of ours is actually bottling milk. That's a bit of a challenge, but it's Jersey. So again, uh, the, you can buy a full-fat Jersey milk. And if you've never consumed uh, Jersey milk, you're in for a real treat. It really tastes different, really tastes different here. And one of my favorite milk drinks is skim Jersey milk because all the solids, not coming from fat, but protein there is in that. And that's a really tasty product out there as well. And the other niche market we're seeing a little bit in Illinois, and that is on-farm tourism. So you can come out and milk cows and feed calves and uh, live on the on the farm, have a breakfast there, and you you pay for that that opportunity, and and that's a big hit on those farmers that are uh, are trying to do that as well. And I call those niche markets, and that may allow uh, the hundred to two hundred cow dairy herd to uh, survive, thrive, and uh, and justify. But I think we're going to see continued growth in dairy herds. Guys, you want to jump in on that? Well, you know, Mike, we've talked about the number of dairies and the number of cows. Let's shift for a second and talk about where they're located. You know, I'm blessed to be here on the I-29 corridor. Uh, we've got more cows in Sioux County than anywhere else in the state of Iowa. Are we going to continue to see the growth because of the water issues and feed issues here in the upper Midwest? Well, Fred, I think you nailed it right on the head. I think water is going to be a huge issue. Uh, those uh, California dairies are going to leave California. They're not going to go to New Mexico uh, because they got some serious water problems on their aquifer as well. So water is going to be a big issue in terms of crop production, just water utilization on dairy farms are significant as well. I, I think markets, it's also going to be important. And that's a little bit of a problem with Idaho. There's just a lot of not a lot of people living in Idaho, but there's a lot of people uh, living in Chicago and New York and points south and east here in the United States. So I think um, uh, the, the population location will allow P in the Midwest to become very doable as far as that goes. We know trucking costs are going up. So bringing that cheese from California uh, to uh, Boston is not going to be cheap anymore. So certainly that's going to be a factor as well. And then I think the, the state itself, you know, how dairy friendly are they? Uh, Iowa, South Dakota, very dairy friendly. Uh, come to Illinois and first of all, you won't have a milk market. Uh, that's the third factor. Where do you sell milk? And of course, you saw some new plants going up in Kansas, some expansion going on the I-29 corridor. And so uh, it's kind of like in Iowa, the field of dreams, you know, if you build it, they will come. And the same thing uh, with milk processing. And so uh, here in Illinois, at a meeting several years ago with Illinois milk producers, the question was raised, well, how many more dairies, how many more dairy cows could your co-op take? And and the common answer was two to 400 cows. And we're we're looking at people coming into the state, which we have a great water aquifer uh, here sitting in central Illinois. Uh, they're going to come in with 3,000 cows. And let me tell you, we had a California dairyman that came in here a number of years ago. And I tell you, it was all troops on hand to get him allowed to produce milk here in the state of Illinois. And his answer was quality of land, three interstates he was located on and lots of water. And so, Fred, you're, I, I think you're going to see uh, a movement uh, coming east, and especially those areas that uh, really like 
dairy agriculture and dairy cattle, and that pretty much takes out uh, some of the areas in Pennsylvania and New York and uh, and even Illinois. Yeah, I think you make a good point, Mike. In my role in extension, of course, we have a lot of smaller farms in Minnesota, and a lot of people ask me what the future of these farms are. And, and a lot of these are really, really profitable farms, but they see the same numbers you quoted as far as some of the consolidation and some of the growth. One thing, and I, I don't know if either of you have comments right now, you know, there's kind of this anti-big ag kind of among consumers. Um, our government programs, at least our dairy programs, the DMC in particular, really is good for smaller farms or farms for the first 5 million pounds. So I really struggle in what advice to give them. I mean, I think there's sentiment around these smaller farms, but at the same time, in reality, some of these large farms, you know, they can capture some scale economics. So I think these in-between farms, I see that kind of struggle. I don't have, it's hard to find labor. It's hard to keep them. Um, I don't know if I have any answers, but if you guys have any comments on that, on on that structure piece, I'd sure be willing to listen. Do you think a lot of it is perspective? I mean, that's, I think it is. When I talk about a small farm, the average farm in my area is 595 cows. So a small farm is 200 cows. And my cohorts in eastern Iowa, small farms are 30, 40 cow farm. And so I, I think there'll be room for all of us, as Mike mentioned, a niche program. Mike, am I missing the boat? Are we going to have to be bigger? Yeah, Fred, I, I hate to be the, the bearer of bad news, but it's just a Hutchins view. But I I think uh, the these smaller uh, 100 cow dairies have to look and simply say, how can I retain profitability as far as that goes? And so they, they're going to have to decide, you know, uh, what am I going to do with my 100 cow dairy herd when everybody else is milking 500 or 1,000 as far as that goes? So I, I, I think profitability and sustainability are, are going to be big terms. And my sustainability and profitability kind of goes together. Other people have different definitions of sustainability. So I, I think, uh, you know, we call them last generation farms in Illinois. You're milking 60 to 100 cows and the sons and daughters cannot come back in. Parents are reluctant to, uh, to, to, to triple or the size of those dairies, assuming they've got the acreage that, that goes with that. And most of that land then gets picked up by uh, uh, crop farmers. And let me tell you, uh, do you want to work uh, two or three weeks in the summer and two or three weeks in the fall? Or do you want to milk cows 24-7? And um, I think a lot of the, the votes here in Illinois have been, uh, they, they're just going to get out. Yeah, I think you're right, Mike. I mean, that's what we see. These farms, if your buildings are there, um, they're depreciated out. You know, you're milking 100 cows or pick the number. Uh, you know, the numbers can work okay until you need to make that reinvestment. And that's a really hard decision for these farmers to make. Because as you mentioned, how do you compete against a great big dairy that's well capitalized? That's that's what makes it really challenging. I think there might be there's I think there's some ways to do it, but you've it's it's 
uh, not for the faint of heart. No, and I, I, I think it's it just let's be realistic, guys. And you two are in the advisory business. You get calls all the time about that. I, I think you just kind of have to look at 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 uh, you know where where the future is. Yes, people like to see cows on pasture. They like to have sixty cow dairies. It's great for the local community. That that's been a huge problem in Illinois. All these livestock farms are gone, and so schools and taxes and support industries, car dealers, veterinarians feed mills are really getting hung up. And, and uh, Fred, uh, you've worked in other lines as well uh, in your career. Uh, certainly, uh, you got to have the, the, the facility or those, uh, those livestock operations there to justify uh, holding the good veterinary service, the good feed mills, uh, consultants. Uh, I don't think, I think I can think of two dairy consultants in the state of Illinois that are making their living off of consulting, but they are also tied in with a feed mill. Yeah, I think that's right. Fred, do you have any comments? I'm going to go back to something Mike mentioned. It's where you have a market. I mean, extension would be history in my life if I could bring my 22 milking shorthorns onto the farm and make a living. And it just, I can't find a way to make that a reality. And I think you got to have that market before we can do anything. If I was wanting to bring those cows to Illinois, wouldn't have a market. If I wanted to do it here in Northwest Iowa, I don't know a milk co-op who wants to make a route to pick up milk from 22 cows. So I think that's going to be the big push. So, Mike, let's switch gears a little bit. This is kind of your wheelhouse of nutrition and feeding. We've got really high-priced grain the last couple of years. You know, that'll come and go. But what do you see as a future of feeding our dairy herd or kind of our national dairy herd or even locally in the upper Midwest? Well, this is, again, a a Hutchins Hutchins bias, but I'm all over forages. I, I think that's our future. Uh, we're going to be start feeding herds at 60, 65, maybe 70% of their total ration dry matter as forages. So that means a quantity and quality. And of course, we've got excellent uh, terms uh, to measure both of them. I mean, uh, you're going to be getting, you know, seven or eight uh, ton of corn size dry matter to the acre. Uh, these alfalfas can get up to six, although the national average is four. And, and, and of course, now we've got the lower lignin uh, silages coming on the marketplace, both both in uh, the alfalfas, the corns, the sorghum and sorghum sedan grass areas. So again, we, we've got certainly that coming into play. We're going to have forages that are going to be a bit more resilient under heat stress. A lot of interest in Southern Illinois, uh, discussion at least on sorghums, uh, less water, about a third less water, and uh, they'll kind of wait for the rain as far as that goes. So certainly I think forages are going to be a key factor in in uh, in terms of feeding cows and uh, assessing that, measuring that, monitoring that, getting it uh, uh, pr- uh, chopped at the right length. A lot of interest in effective fiber and UNDF. Those are all exciting terms now that dairymen, nutritionists, and veterinarians have to get their arms around out here as well. And then, of course, there's been some a good discussion on byproduct feeds. If you go out to uh, California, what are you going to do with all those almond hulls? And they just keep making more and more of them. In fact, the almonds are running the dairy cattle out of certain sectors in the valley. And, of course, we're not going to truck them back here to Illinois to feed. So certainly byproduct feeds 
Um, we had a real good sweetheart deal here with corn gluten feed, but boy, if you look at the, the price of that now, it, it tracks with corn. And so it not nearly as attractive as it was, say, five years ago in corn distillers grains. And the same thing applies to soy holes. They used to be an unbelievable deal. And now, well, not so much with our expensive uh, soybean prices as well. But certainly you and I, um, uh, Fred and Jim, we can make a ration that uses no corn and no soybean meal. We can use all byproduct feeds. Especially if you give me hominy, that's a byproduct feed. We can make that all happen. So I, I think we're going to get off the human plate and we're going to go more to uh, uh, our forage-based feeding programs uh, here as well. You know, I've been working some now in extension. There's a lot of money through some of these government programs to reduce carbon footprint. That's about all we hear about now. If you pick up the national news and the political debate, where does that leave our dairy industry? Of course, cows are sort of not any kind of ruminants, I guess, are sort of in the target zone, it seems like, for kind of environmentalists to really lower that. So what are where do you think our dairy industry is going to be going as far as this whole carbon, methane, reducing the number of ruminants or for sure reducing the carbon footprints of our dairy cows? Wow, that's a that's a big area. In fact, I think it opens up the whole challenge, uh, Fred and Jim, that uh, consumers are going to have impact. Uh, right now, they're wondering, how are you treating your animals? Uh, do, they, uh, do the calf get separated from the cow? And now we got this whole carbon footprint. And, uh, and our colleagues from uh, California, Davis, have done some excellent work uh, simply saying that, you know, if, if you look at dairy cows, if you look at the recycling of byproduct feeds and forage utilization, they really should not be being penalized at all. In fact, they're, they're probably very friendly to that. Now, we haven't sold that as well as we could. And he argues that the real problem is oil and gas because uh, we recycle a lot of our carbon through uh, crop growth. Uh, capturing it with corn, alfalfa, and all those other crops as well. And so we are kind of recycling that carbon, whereas when you pump out that barrel of oil and you make it into whatever you're going to make it into, be it a, buy, a be it a clothing or be it gasoline or the case is, it, it's going into the environment as far as that goes. So I think we have a story there, but it's there. Uh, we're, we're being blamed and I, I think uh, this capturing of uh, methane or off manure is here. I, I think you see it coming in California. They're putting in significant dollars in uh, in these large manure systems where they can capture this methane and scrub it and put it back in the gas line. And again, that's going to be a challenge for the dairy industry, because if you've got uh, 200 cows, your odds of putting in a digester is, is almost impossible unless you get huge government support as far as that goes. The carbon footprint, uh, Jim and Fred, I, I just can't get my arms around it. I'm not sure. I don't see hard numbers, but the word is that there, there, there could be some dollars in, in terms of capturing carbon, either as crops or adjusting uh, dairy rations. And there is some ways that you and I can lower methane production uh, in dairy cattle. And, and it's really good news, as you guys both know. Uh, it's a win-win. In other words, if I decrease or you decrease methane production from a cow, that makes that carbon available for milk production, for growth, for reproduction. And of course, it's good for the environment because I don't really need to put that into my environment as well. So dairy farmers are going to be very friendly to this, these methane changes that occur on rations because that should translate into something else that they can actually market. Could be milk, could be meat, whatever 
whatever the case is going to be. Yeah, I think you're right, but it's a, it's a tough issue for farmer. Fred, do you have any comments on this whole environmental area? We're seeing digesters right, right now, but there's a, a Mike mentioned, you know, what we feed changes the methane also. So I think it's kind of an exciting time. We're going to see some monumental changes in the industry. I guess where I'd like to shift it now is what's the consumer demand? What What's out there? Uh, just this past week, they brought on where cell-produced meat now has its first hurdle climbed. What are we going to see for the dairies? What What's the consumer going to drive as far as what they consume, Mike? What's your crystal ball say? Well, I, I think we better be be well aware. We now have beverages that are not milk-based, and they're, there's a big argument, should we even call them milk? But they are out there. Uh, you know, almond milk, people think almond milk is great. Uh, where's my dairy co-op producing milk with an almond flavor? We have chocolate milk. We have strawberry milk. We don't have almond milk. And if that's better on your Wheaties every morning, then buy milk instead of buying uh, the almond drink as far as that goes. There are now five country, uh, companies I see now that are trying to make synthetic cheese and <clears throat> growing it. In other words, they're, they're producing it uh, through microbial engineering as far as that goes. And again, um, I think if you like a uh, cheese, just straight cheese, I think it will have some hurdles to climb. But if you're making a casserole and you can put in that cheese that's artificial, that is not true cheese, who will know if, in fact, once you melt it into your casserole or or, or whatever bakering, baking you're going to be doing as well. But th- these are going to become factors. <clears throat> Look at organic milk. I mean, you know, uh, the last figure I saw, about 5% of the milk nationally is organic-based if you go to my store, you're going to pay two, two and a half times the price per gallon or per liter for that milk as far as that goes. And so those people who are dedicated to the organic um, approach in terms of food products, they're going to pay that premium as far as that goes. Same thing with some of our other drinks out here, at least my soy milk. When I go to my grocery store, soy milk and almond milk, it is much more expensive than regular milk. And of course, all I do is look at the ingredients list. And of course, the milk, there's one ingredient in the milk, it's called milk. If you look at some of the other ones, you'll see perhaps 12 to 16 different ingredients that were used to produce that uh, plant-based beverage out there. But that's going to be a factor that I think uh, you and I will uh, uh, see coming in our lifetimes here. And there'll be um, uh, opportunities to purchase those if you wish. The same thing is happening on the meat side. And uh, at at this point, uh, you know, the question is uh, texture, taste, and price. All those things become factors. Yeah, I don't know if what the dairy industry, lack of a better term, kind of doing wrong to promote that. Actually, uh, maybe within the last month or so, I was listening to a prominent Twin Cities radio station. One of the announcers, you know, she's a middle-aged lady. And I don't know if somebody had clued her in, but she kind of got on this kick about you know, almond milk, I look at that and it costs a lot more than cow's milk and there's nothing in it. The protein levels are way low, so it's not nearly as nutritious. And she seems so surprised by that. And I think if we're in the dairy industry, we know that. I mean, there's there's not a, near as much nutrition and it's more expensive. But so she was kind of trying to understand why people would buy almond milk, but she seemed really shocked by that. So I think 
part of it is, and I don't know what the answer is, Mike, maybe we need somebody like you as a big promoter, but as a dairy industry, I don't know if we're just kind of all modest or it's not the thing to be in, or it's not the hip thing, but I think we have, I tell dairy farmers that you guys, we have a great, very nutritious product. Now, you know, marketing sometimes wins out. Um, but I think that maybe, you know, the other, this is off the subject a little bit, but I was listening this had, it was actually a Harvard business review article. I like Harvard business review and the title of the article is milk is priced too cheap. And they argued commodity milk is way too cheap. There's not enough margin to innovate. Whereas they talked about almond milk and some of these other milk, there's so much profit margin in those. They can keep innovating and trying new products and marketing schemes. Whereas milk, there's just not enough margin. So this, this was a marketing person. They were arguing, you guys need, the dairy industry needs to raise the price of milk so they can create more innovative products. I don't know if any, either of you have comments, but I thought that was an interesting article coming from Harvard Business Reviewers just purely looking at it from an economic standpoint. Well, unfortunately, Jim, I I think uh, I think you're you're spot on as far as that goes. The, the goal is to keep milk as cheap as you can. I mean, here in the U.S., we want cheap energy, we want cheap food, and and, and so dairy has gone up what nineteen percent now supposedly in the marketplace. You know, with uh, with what's going on here in the last uh, six months, and so that's 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 one of the numbers they're following along with meat and along with other you know, uh, flour and those kind of things as well. But you're, you're you're probably right, and yet we're so wanting to keep our price low. Mm-hmm. We 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 have a a large bottler here in the Midwest that will not put milk to schools into uh, plastic containers because it would add an extra half a cent for of the uh, for the milk serving, uh, like you'd find in McDonald's or Wendy's where you get a twist off cap. Uh, most little kids can't open a paper carton. In fact, I have a hard time if I don't have my pen with me getting some of mine open. Oh, that cost thing becomes a huge factor. And and these are co-op driven. Uh, these are, you know, co- companies that uh, are controlled by by dairy farmers. And and so the question is, how, how do you overcome that, Jim and Fred? I, I don't know how you overcome that cheap food, low cost, cheapest milk source uh, on the marketplace. Well, that's a good question. Fred, do you have any comments? I think it's frustrating for dairy farmers because we've got to figure out how to increase this margin, it seems like. Well, you know, you look at what's global, you know, the, the a lot of the countries who export product, their droughts affecting them. They have people in the, their government who are making it more difficult. So if there's ever going to be an opportunity to say, okay, things are going to get more expensive maybe we're coming into that time period will we do it no i don't think so but uh you know the, the fluctuation we're experiencing is not going to be changing i guess fred the question i would question is who can do it i guess i see either my co-ops or my milk marketing companies and of course national milk producers now controls 80 plus percent of the milk or the government you know, but do you think your government government is going to uh, say we're going to increase the milk price? They do in Canada, but they have a quota. They really control it. And so, you know, who's who is going to take the leadership or have the, the, the ability to really impact 
trying to increase the value of milk, say 5% or 10%, when in fact right now we're screaming that our, our all our costs have gone up uh, d- due to inflation. I mean, I don't know if it's products. Think of Fairlife. You know, they're they're sure not a cheap product. It's a new product. It's not organic. It's you know they don't really market it as anything other than we're low. You know, we're low sugar and we're a higher protein product. So I think we you know maybe we need to be a little bit more creative in creating some of these niche markets and people that you know Fairlife. I I like regular milk, but people that drink Fair Life just love it and are willing to pay that premium. And Jim, if you really love milk, just get some of Fair Life's chocolate milk and it it will just smoke. Any That's other what people milk say. Milk. Yep. It is just really, it's got more chocolate in it. It's got, it's a richer, it's got more protein into it. It's really good stuff, as we would say. But you're right. We, we need to look at, uh, you know, the, the next uh, pizza cheese. You know, is there another home run out there that needs to be yep. developed? In, in 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 the dairy market yeah kind of a greek yogurt or a new you know kind of a new market segment that we can just not just demand up although you know total milk consumption in the u.s has done really well it's you know farmers follow fluid but in reality as long as the total milk equivalents continue to go up we're you know we can talk all day long about plant-based beverages but people like dairy products they just they're, they're very healthy um, and they also taste good. So I think it's a good deal for all of us. So I'm going to have to ask you guys, is whey-based vodka a dairy product? I mean, are we missing the boat here, guys? <laughs> I'll, I'll let Jim answer that. Uh, it's out of my league. Uh, you know, Fred, that's a really good question. <laughs> I can't stand vodka, so I think way bay. I don't care if it's way based. Give me a dish of ice cream. I there you go. That. We can all agree on that. So yeah. That's more my cup of tea. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us on this I-29 MUYU podcast. You know, None of us have the ability to really look into the future, but I'd like to thank Mike. I think he's as well-connected as anybody. I know he's thought a lot about this, like many of us in the dairy industry do, so I think this is actually some food for thought if you're out there and thinking about how can my business, if you're a dairy farmer, how can my business fit into the future of the dairy industry? Because that's really what your goal is, too, is is find a business model that allows you to be successful with all the changes that are happening. So with Mike or Fred, do either of you have any kind of last minute comments or words of wisdom for to our listeners? Well, no, I just say amen to what you just said, Fred, uh, Fred and, and, and Jim. I think you have to see where's the future. And for some of you out there, uh, the future is five years. And for some of you, it could be uh, 25 years. And just be sure that uh, you are allowed or positioned to uh, to be a part of the very favorable uh, U.S. dairy industry. Thanks again, everybody. We'd like to thank our 2022-23 Annual I-29 sponsors, Iowa Corn Growers Association and T-Lay Dairy Video Sales. Learn more about Iowa Corn Growers Association at iowacorn.org. Learn more about T-Lay Dairy Video Sales at tlaydairyvideosales.com. I-29 MUU is an equal opportunity provider. For the full non-discrimination statement, or accommodation inquiries, go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.